Welcome to the Collective Intelligence Network podcast. Today I'm speaking with Nora Bateson. Nora is a systems theorist, an award-winning filmmaker, the president of the International Bateson Institute, and recently received the Neil Postman Award for Career Achievement in Public Intellectual Activity. She's the creator of the documentary An Ecology of Mind about her father Gregory Bateson and the author of a book titled Small Arcs of Larger Circles. She coined the term warm data and has been teaching and facilitating warm data labs in various parts of the world. We have reached her in Pittsburgh. Thank you, Nora, for coming on the podcast today. Hello, how are you? I am quite well. Uh, How are you? I'm good. Um, I'm very well. I'm um, in Pittsburgh today, and uh, I'm happy to be doing some really interesting work here and uh, just trying to keep my spirits up um, in a time when it feels like there's a lot of uh, a lot of interwoven cascading, um, systemic issues pulling us mm. into um, into a state that can be quite hopeless sometimes. Um, so I'm really happy and en- enlivened to be doing this work here. Great. I I'd like to talk about the work that you're doing. I think there's uh, there's big context that we could discuss, including. Uh, kind of your background and system theory and cybernetics and the philosophy behind what you're doing. Um, but I wanted to start by just zooming in on the warm data labs and and warm data in general or warm data. Uh, I think we all have some some notion of what the phrase cold hard data or, or cold data might mean. How should we understand what warm data is? Um, okay, so warm data is, it's, I think it's best to think of warm data as another species of information. Instead of trying to think of it as qualitative information or as, as um, even relational information, I think it's, it's best to just think of it as another, another beast altogether. Um, and the reason that I'm sort of pushing for that distance is because I think it's really important that there be a new kind of permission. Um, and I'll tell you why. So it's it, it's a, it's a fairly sort of orthodox way of looking at the world that we, we generate facts and information by pulling things out of context and studying them. And that kind of information has been, of course, what we've built the entire, uh, you know, sort of last several hundred years of creating um, modernity within. And 
And it's what makes the building stand, what makes the lights go on. It's what makes, you know, so much of our medical uh, innovation work. It's, it's been useful in a lot of ways, but at the same time, there's absolutely no way to dispute the fact that human beings have done a tremendous amount of damage to the delicate interdependencies of life. Life in our families, life in our bodies, life in the forests, life in the oceans, life in cultures, that there is a, a way in which uh, particularly Western civilization has cultivated a blindness to the multiple layers and textures and tonalities of information that is um, is what I would call warm data. Uh, so when we're looking at a complex system, like a family or your body or an ocean or any of those things I just mentioned, what makes that system complex is actually just that it's alive. And in that livingness, there are multiple processes in interdependency. So, you know, yes, in my body, I have these various organs functioning, but also I have an emotional life. I have an intellectual life. I have a, a life with other people in an environment, in a particular place. And all of those contexts come together in, in all sorts of ways. And that interdependency requires multiple contextual interactions that are moving in time. And so what we're really wondering is what does information look like when it's in motion and when it moves through multiple contextual processes? Hmm. That's what warm data is. And um, so my feeling is that we, we, whatever we, the 7 billion of us that happen to be residing on this planet right now, uh, will need to become a lot better at responding to the complexity that we live within. Mm. If we're going to pull through some of these issues we're facing, um, such as loss of biodiversity, wealth gap, um, everything from cultural to ecological exploitation and degradation, um, and so on and so forth. So, You're right. yeah, that's what warm data is. Warm data is that other information that is about how the vitality of a system is produced across contexts. Mm. It's a good de definition. And so, for so we can so we can kind of embed this in a context. Um, mm -hmm. You've been facilitating warm data la labs. Um, and training other people to host them. And I'm curious, if we were to, if I walked into a room where a warm data lab was happening, what would I see and hear? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, all right, if you walked into a room where a warm data lab was going on, what you would see is lots of little groupings of people having conversations. And then spontaneously getting up and walking into another group and joining their conversation and then sitting there for a while and moving to a new conversation. 
And in each one of those little groups, there's a context. So let's say that this, we're talking about a warm data lab on, um, well, let's, let's say this week I have warm data labs on the question of what is a caring community in a changing world. And so um, what are the contexts that that takes place in? What is a caring community in a changing world? So that's an economic question. That's a political question. That's a, um, it's a cultural question. It's family, it's media, it's technology, it's history. It's, uh, it's about health. It's about education. It's about, um, a lot of different contexts coming together. Um, the ecology, it's an environmental question. So all of those things that I just listed could be stations in our warm data lab. And then people will move between them and they'll speak to this question of what is a caring community in a changing world through the context of education. And they talk for a while and then they move to another one through the context of economy. They talk for a while and they move and they go to another one and they talk about what is caring community through the context of culture. And each time they do this, there's, um, there's a wide range of discourse that appears. And some of it is personal story. Sometimes people are just listening. Sometimes there's a joke. Sometimes there's, you know, more professional knowledge or cultural social noticings. Um, but the important thing is this, is that when you get those multiple textures, what you're starting to get at is the humanity of the deeper levels of how the sense-making is forming across all these different contexts. So what's interesting about that is that when you get a group of people together, probably each person in the room is good at something. They have some existing knowledge and then maybe an existing set of scripts that they could plug into. And they could speak to one of those contexts. You know, maybe someone's a teacher and they feel like they could speak to the education context and the question of what is a caring community in a changing world. Or they're a doctor and they could speak to the question of what is health in a caring community in a changing world. And um, but then they have to change contexts. And when they change contexts, they don't have those onboard scripts to plug into. They don't have that same professional distance. What they do have is their personal experience. So there's a multiple um, sort of tonality, and it, 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 the process itself requires and brings out the complexity of the people taking part. So that's really important, because for me in my work, what I've really become so clear on is that it takes complexity to perceive complexity. And if we're just talking about complexity or systems in a sort of sterile academic discourse, there are levels of our own being into which that understanding of complexity will not root, it won't catch, there's no traction, it won't hold, it can't soak in. Mm. And um, 
And so what happens is in that this process, um, you might not be the one telling a personal story, but you might be the one listening to someone else tell a personal story. And as you're listening, the flashes of your own sort of linkings and memories and what that story re- reminds you of and kindles for you. And those linkings start to link onto other things and relink. And when you've changed contexts a few times, something really significant happens, which is that there is a, a, a landing of a sort of um, a depth of experience of interdependency that is shared in the room. And what's fascinating to me is that uh, I don't tell people what to, there's no map of what the system looks like. There's no, you know, list of what's in the interdependency. There's no, I don't list the stakeholders. I don't draw the arrows between them. What I have found after many years of teaching systems and complexity is that in fact, each person's experience of what complexity and interdependency is, is a completely intimate experience, totally individual and absolutely intimate, which is um, really a sort of, it's a significant shift because I'm not asking them to, you know, make some sort of um, academic or intellectual leap. I'm asking them to sense make. I'm making a space for sense making to take place across multiple forms of intelligence, right? They're looking and experiencing the nonverbal communication in those groups, the, the, the wash of layers of memory and history and time coming together. And what I have found is that that real epistemological shift happens when people's own memories get reframed, re-intoned, re-entangled into their being in a way that includes the interdependency that they exist within. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, uh, it's amazing to hear about this process where a pretty sophisticated uh, understanding of systems and complexity and a lot of philosophical background is is being rooted in a very concrete um, embodied process that you've developed. And in one of in I think one of the podcasts that you've done, you said that the that what happens is the the room starts to become a system that's learning to make sense of its world in a new way, which sounds mm-hmm. like also what you're describing. And I'm curious, after people have participated or as they're participating, speak to them afterward when you come together after you've done the, the different contexts in conversation, what has changed for them? What's changed their what's changed in their perspective or how are they going out of the warm data lab with a different view of the world or with a different approach to the work that they're doing in it than when they came in? Well, 
You know, the thing about working in this process is that you never know where it's going to pop out. Hmm. So if you're looking for some linear goal, <laughs> that's just not what we started off doing here. So it's right. so interesting to me because um, the way in which things start to change in people's lives is, um, is not really trackable. It's just everywhere. So people will, you know, call a sibling they haven't talked to in 20 years, or they will, um, you know, suddenly change their diet or the way that they're treating their body, or they will shift the tone in which they interact with their kids, or they will just start asking really different questions. Um, so that's if you're sort of a, a warm data lab tourist, okay? So that's a, that's one type of attending the warm data lab where you just, let's go check out this thing and they go and it's an event and it's groovy and it's fun and some shifts happen and they think about their, their own lives in another way. I've, I've had a lot of people who have suddenly made sense of things that have, you know, been really hurting them or holding them back for years. And then they suddenly see it from a new direction and they get free of an old anger or something that's, that's um, a resentment or lostness. Or, uh, that happens a lot. Sometimes people write me three days later and they say, well, I quit my job. <laughs> I have you to thank for it. And I'm just sort of thinking, uh-oh. <laughs> what have I done? Um, but but what what happens is that it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that many of the projects that have been sort of set forth at, in one silo or another as some kind of you know change making project were seventeen sizes too small. And so the one of the first things that can happen is that there's a sense of hopelessness of going, uh-oh, you know, the only tools we have, the only place we can go to work on Monday is inside these various silos. And yet you do this warm data work and it becomes clear very quickly that actually the work that needs to get done is in the liminal space. It's in the space between. And there isn't any gainful employment there. There isn't... There isn't a, a policy to be made there. There isn't a, a, a ministry of the liminal to send a letter to. There's nowhere to protest. There's, you know, so it's there's a, a little bit of a, a bump around that. On the other hand, this is the upside, um, there's nothing to stop you from doing anything in that liminal space. The liminal space is the space in between the institutions, in between the processes of of all of those contexts we mentioned. So, um, so all sorts of things happen. Um, people come together, they reform their community, they start, you know, completely new projects, they address things really differently, they do all sorts of things. But, but one of the things, and I think this is where this ties into your work, Adam, is that we need each other to do this. Mm -hmm. That complexity is not something you do alone. And 
to do anything in the liminal, you can't be alone. And um, it's an interesting sort of opening into a new, of course it isn't new, it's been there all along, um, but an un, uncharted territory. Um, but without each other, there's no there there. So it's, um, it's been fascinating to, to do repeated labs. So I talked about, you know, you could be the warm data tourist, but then you can also be in the sort of warm data work zone where there's repeated warm data labs. There's a, a, a project that's, that's being worked toward or a community that's, that's in process. And that's another thing. And what happens there is sort of, I think the better metaphor is something like soil, where there's all of these different sort of ways of looking and being, and they start to find each other like probiotics, fermenting or something. And it becomes a new life form. There's a reunion and a, and a, a finding of, of various ways of being together. But that's got to be a living process, and it's got to happen across a lot of different contexts and through the diversity of, of lived experience, the deep complexity of you and the deep complexity of me start to find each other. And what we have is so much more than the professional Nora and the professional Adam. Hmm. So we're going way beyond the edge of our roles and hmm. deep into the, 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 the compost of human complexity where things can grow, where possibilities are just everywhere. Right. So this, this brings me to kind of my geeky question or, or like my, my uh, quantitative self is going, this is super awesome. How can we measure it to, to demonstrate how amazing it is? And at the same time, I know that, that that's kind of counter to the whole ethos and purpose. So, so I'm curious if, um, like, is there a transcontextual way to, to measure or to show these kinds of results? Or is that the whole notion of result measurement or evidence-based intervention with warm data labs kind of uh, an absurdity? I'm rooting for the latter here. I want us to get to a place where we know what to measure and what not to. You know, there's a time and a place to measure things. But I think it's one of the, the interesting issues is that in order to measure, you have to decontextualize. So if you just really think about that, then most of our measurements include vast blind spots, right? You could measure my whatever, my age, my financial worth, my um, education, my this, my that. But when you start to look at how my life is in other contexts, those measurements don't have anything to do with who I am. Mm -hmm. 
or how I am in relationship to you or what, where my complexity meets your complexity. So it's just the wrong question. Um, and so it's, a, it's an interesting problem, but I think it's one we just have to start asking ourselves this question, which is what is it about our culture that we just cannot let go of measuring? Mm-hmm. Even when we know it's blinding us to what's really there. I think it has uh, also to do with our the desire to 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 promote something into systems that want metrics, like thinking about warm data labs and how useful this could be within within government and and policy making, or or how important it would be to to fund something or to to research something in order to prove that it's useful and therefore should be funded or should be adopted. But what I what I'm hearing for you is that you're taking a really kind of embodied approach to this and just doing it and demonstrating what the effect is kind of person to person. Yeah. Um I, I, I don't know what to say. You know, it's a different thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you can measure someone's health by taking their blood pressure. But the ultimate measure of their health is the relationships that they, the multiple relationships of their lives from their microbiome to their, you know, family and their community. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I just, I, I'm not sure that measuring those things is going to help. How do you see warm data labs being used? Where in your kind of vision of the way that this kind of work could be used to address the challenges that we are facing as a, as a planet, as a species, as organizations, as individuals, what would that look like? Where could it go? Yeah, I think it can go in a lot of different directions. Um, And because it's transcontextual, it is transcontextual. (laughs) So so right now there's 13-year-old. I I graduated a 13-year-old girl from the warm data training session a few weeks ago. And the, the host training session is no joke. It's a hard course. It's five days. And um, uh, it's not for the faint at heart. Um, but you have to be ready to do some work. And But in order to participate in a warm data lab, you don't need to know one single thing about systems or anything else. Participants can be absolutely on the outside of any kind of notion of any of that, and they'll get it. In, in an hour and a half, two hours, they'll have an understanding of what complexity is. Um, so, but the course itself, uh, is, is for the hosts. And I really don't want people to do these without doing the hosting program because there's, it's a lot deeper than what meets the eye. The the beauty of the process is it appears very simple, but it is not actually. Um, so the host needs to know what's going on. And if you don't know, it won't, it won't work. Um, so it's not just something that anybody can just do. And uh, so 
what is happening is it's going into working with organizations and thinking about ways in which we can approach this notion of a value chain non-linearly. It's going into political realms. It's going into, um, and but I think most importantly, into community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what it is really is a place where there is a kind of, like I said before, it's a kind of compost heap where there's a new fermentation and new things can grow. So, you know, the, the theoretical piece there that, um, that we're talking about is a piece about something in systems theory called um, abductive inquiry. And what happens is that uh, in our sense-making, there are ways in which um, the cognition system uses the sense-making of one context to make sense of another. And then we use this, the, the sense-making of another context to make sense of another. So we're deep in this mechanistic set of epistemological traps because all of our sense-making processes are reflecting into each other using that way of, of sense-making. We use our education system to make sense of the health system. We use the health system to make sense of the political system. We use the economic system to make sense of all the systems. Right? But, but because all of these things are reflected to and from and within and through each other, we're so in the matrix, mm. right? So what the Warm Data Lab does is it kind of gets us out of the matrix. It offers a new set of abductive possibilities that bring, like I was saying earlier, bring our memories, our embodied experience of life to reflect through context in a new way. And it's impossible to think from inside the system how we're going to change the system when the system is what needs changing and it doesn't want to change. Mm-hmm. The nature of the system is not to change. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so maybe you could uh, say a little bit about what you're doing in Pittsburgh right now. Yeah. This is a super cool project. I love this project. And this is a project that was funded by the Garfield Foundation along with the Forbes Foundation. And it's um, a two-tiered project that has to do with uh, building community in some of the most vulnerable communities of this city and um, using Warm Data Labs to help those communities begin to perceive their lives through this lens of interdependency instead of through the fragmentation of the various siloed um, systemic difficulties, right? So they, they're, there's huge struggle here at the level of employment, at the level of health, at the level of education, at the level of housing, at the level of, um, you know, domestic abuse at the level of, right? All of these, these issues are, are in full bloom. And there's a, a corresponding charity or foundation to sort of serve each of them. But the interdependency between them is really the problem. 
And so what's been so cool is to see how this community has grabbed onto uh, warm data and the notion of complexity and interdependency. Like, it was just the way of, of, of bringing the community together, of going beyond these silos, of getting out of the fragmentation and the competition, the rivalry. Um, and they're asking questions at another level entirely now. Now, the curse of that is that there could be no one to hear them. So we have the second tier, which is the tier of the foundations and people doing policy and charity who are we're also doing warm data with to get them ready to actually be able to hear what the community is taught, is saying. So I think this is so cool. Um, and it's a, it's really a, a pilot program and the stakes are high and the people are, people are so incredible. Um, and I, I'm so happy to be doing this work. Fantastic. That sounds like something that would be useful in just about any city in the world, certainly Vancouver. Um, yeah. And it's, it's spreading like wildfire. Um, there's, I think there's about 250 warm data hosts in the world now. They're in Asia. There's, there's a huge warm data group um, in Australia. They're in Europe. There's um, the UK. They're um, soon to be South America, um, in the US. Fantastic. So I'll, I'll uh, put some links in the, the post with this podcast, but if someone wanted to find out more about warm data or to, to find where they could attend a warm data lab or how they could bring it into their organization or their context, what would be the best, the, the best place for them to look? Yeah, there's a website at uh, warmdata.net, but I just have to say that all this is happening really quickly. And I'm a little behind on everything. Um, our team is just meeting next week to get everything up and running. So I would say um, that's the best place. Um, I know I have a, a, a course in February in Ireland that I'll shortly put up uh, the, uh, the details for. Um, but... Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say is it's moving fast and it, it, it's happening faster than I anticipated. And um, so well, that's the good news, but it's also, <laughs> you know, how to structure the organization of something that by nature requires that the structure itself have room for these living processes to move. And it, it's so specific to the locale. Mm. And, and yet... You know, people are actually in communication with each other across multiple locales. So, yeah, so bear with me. We're on it. But That's great to hear. <laughs> That's great to hear. So for, for the, um, you mentioned in your book, sometimes the, the, it's the danger of making assumptions in framing. Um, and, and you've also said, at one point, if you, if you start off thinking you know what the problem is, probably somewhere lurking you think you know what the solution is, and that's not a, a good place to start. Which I, I like that, um, that quote. 
So I'm wondering for people in the collective intelligence world, um, which is a very am- amorphous thing, but with this, this general uh, intention to to help uh, groups make decisions better together or work better together or to to upgrade at some scale how collective decision making collective deliberation happens what is the what are the assumptions that you'd like to see questioned more okay so i the first one was gonna make you mad at me good so i just want to warn you (laughs) <laughs> that I, I think that we have to be really careful with the idea that collective intelligence is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's really easy for the collective intelligence to create a matrix. It is not good at all. I mean, arguably, this is what, you know, sort of happened around uh, Harvey Weinstein. There was a collective intelligence that said nobody's to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, essentially, you could look at what happened in Germany in the 30s and the, the emergence of the Nazi regime as collective intelligence. Mm-hmm. So or- for me, what's important is, is uh, not necessarily the collective intelligence but the collective, um, the collective familiarity with interdependency. And I have a feeling that that's what you really mean mm. when you talk about collective intelligence. So in that warm data lab experience, for the first hour or so, everybody's walking around having their own experience, and they're, it's very atomized until the last moment when the room comes together and then there is a collective plenary sense-making where words are found, sentences happen that connect things and reconnect things at a group level. So there's this tension between this rich um, experience of memories linking in new ways that each person's having and you know they're so different right my memories of whatever my grandmother's recipes and some moment when I sprained my ankle you know like right it's so different the school I went to the teacher that was mean to me that right the the experiences that have built me are so different than the experiences that have built you and that differencing is, um, is the richness that then when the collective sense-making happens uh, in that plenary moment, there's a shared sense of interdependency. Thanks for listening to the Collective Intelligence Network podcast.